0: This sermon needs an introduction, I think. It's my last solo sermon to you as we near the end of our five years together. So in that sense, it's a benediction. But it's a marker in another sense as well. For as I've thought about what I wanted to say today, I've reflected on what I've already said and realized, once again, that like many ministers, much of what I have to say, is a variation on a single theme. And that theme, I realized, was summed up in the sermon I preached in the downtown Toronto church as I was a potential candidate for the ministry of my first congregation in 1990. If it's true that every minister has just one sermon, and perhaps if it's true that every coyote has just one song, it's about This one was mine. It's about the church as a community, about how we relate to each other, and about how together we find hope. In fact, it's titled A Community of Hope, for it's that image that first drew me into ministry. Now, over the years, I've also talked a lot about things, about other things, At least they may seem on the surface like other things. I've talked a lot about spirituality. I've challenged us to broaden our understandings of God and prayer and the traditional language of religion. Not much mention of these topics in that first sermon. That was partly because my own spirituality was still evolving and still is. And partly because back then those topics would have been uncomfortable to many of my listeners. But looking back, I think that if I had spoken in the language of spirituality, it would only have strengthened the message of the sermon. Whether we are humanists or theists, or both, as I like to think I am, the church for me is a community of hope. I didn't then know the story of the rabbi's gift, but I heard it only a month later at a colleague's ordination at the Arlington Church. Ever since, it has come to embody the spirit of community in which we accept each other as we are and grow to appreciate what we can be for each other, each of us a potential messiah, if you will, and all of us together a sacred community. In fact, when Phyllis and I left the Baltimore church after 14 years, as We recall that this story had been used in my first sermon in Baltimore, and we left them with, as a gift, with uh, the saying, the Messiah is one of you in calligraphy that has hung on the pulpit since then. So under these circumstances, let me offer today a repeat of my first sermon, slightly abridged and shortened in the hope that you'll find it an appropriate valedictory. And will leave you with renewed hope. For I think this congregation offers the promise of just the kind of community that can be a source of hope for all of us. Here's what I offered in that first sermon, now 26 years ago, and have been preaching ever since. My mind goes back two years to my first day as a chaplain intern on 6 West, a medical-surgical unit at Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C. This 40-bed unit was to be my responsibility all summer. After 30 years as a lawyer, I had decided to enter the ministry. I had finished my first year of seminary. Here I was sitting at the bedside of a man who actually had been a lawyer I had known in my law practice about 10 years before when he had come to me saying he'd been diagnosed with a brain tumor and given only a few months to live, would I help him settle his affairs He told me he had already been there at the hospital on that hospitalization for three months. He had been struggling with cancer for eight years now, I guess it was, and the next day faced at least his 20th surgery. I was to see this man many times that summer, and from the beginning I struggled. What did I, a newcomer to illness, have to offer to him, a hospital veteran? What did I, a liberal Unitarian Universalist, have to offer to him, a devout Roman Catholic? What words of comfort? What words and symbols of prayer? Now the scene in my mind's eye shifts. I look out over the congregation I served the following summer in a Virginia suburb of Washington. That would be the Fairfax Congregation. I see the faces of people who were struggling with life-threatening illnesses, like my patient on 6th West. I see the faces of people whose family or friends were struggling with illness. I see the faces of congregants with elderly parents. I see the faces of parents of seriously ill children. And I see the faces of people who were grieving recent losses. I feel that knowingly or not, they have come in search of something, in search of solace to begin with, of comfort, of a word of hope. Are they looking to me? And as I continue to look, I see other faces, the faces of people who were feeling the pain of rejection or failure, the pain of grief, as often as people flush with the joy of life's abundant blessings. Moreover, it is the human condition, I think, that we often feel an existential anxiety about our human mortality. We all know that we are going to die. We cannot accept the prospect that our lives will end absolutely and finally. How can we find immortality if not in another life, at least in the form of meaning in this life here on earth? All of us then come together seeking comfort, Seeking meaning, seeking hope. My mind goes back again to that summer at Sibley Hospital. At home one night toward the end of the summer, my beeper sounded. My patient was being moved into intensive care. I rushed over to the hospital. He was receiving the last rites of the Roman Church. Not for the last time. I mean, not for the first time. After the priest left, I sat at the patient's bedside. The crisis had subsided. We talked, and he urged me to stay. We talked about living and about dying. We talked about God and about suffering. We talked, we must have talked for nearly an hour. It was after midnight. Finally, as we prepared to part, I thought, perhaps for the last time, I took his hand, and in that moment, in that moment shared with him my anxiety during the summer about how to comfort him what to say, how to pray and when slowly he smiled at me then he squeezed my hand and said it doesn't matter the important thing is that you were there you were there it was for me a transformative moment. So it is, I think, with our life, our life together in this community of faith, in this congregation, as in every other. We re- we relieve the burdens we all carry simply by being there for each other. I may preach about social justice, or I may preach about the great themes of life. Some sometimes I hope, at least a few people may find in the worship experience the seed of hope, but my message this morning is that our hope in the first instant comes from who we are to each other, from who we are to each other. That is to say our hope comes first of all from the sense that we accept each other without judgment, from the assurance of our acceptability that we experience together only so will we feel deep within our being that we have moral worth. Only such assurance and hope can free us to go about our lifetime journey of transforming our lives and our society to become more compassionate. It is in the sense that our religious life together demands a strong foundation of community. Community is for us what the ocean is for fish, It provides the essential environment for our religious journey together. In community, we become a school for loving, indeed a school for living. What might it mean if we saw ourselves as a school for living? Let's start with how we relate to each other in the daily life of the congregation. Have you ever spoken out in a gathering of fellow members and afterwards felt that no one really heard you? Perhaps others interrupted or finished your sentence. Or perhaps they even nodded their assent, seeming to listen. Yet later when they spoke or acted after the meeting, they gave no indication of having really heard what you said. Nothing changed. I have not experienced that much in this congregation. I have had some sense that others may have had that experience in the past that this congregation has evolved. That is a wonderful sign. How often have you really felt good before, during, and after a meeting, feeling that people really cared how you felt? I can't honestly say that in my lifetime of church meetings, I am a birthright Unitarian, I very often felt that way. And let me be honest about something else. I've been to a lot of meetings where I didn't do very much real listening myself. I have been too wrapped up in my own needs, in my own agenda, sometimes my own fears. But suppose now that we decided to take seriously the idea of our congregation as a school for living. Might it mean a serious focus not only on how we can change the world but on how we might change ourselves. Might it mean learning the skills of listening to each other and practicing them in our time together? Might then each of us, perhaps for the first time in our lives, discover what it feels like to be truly heard, truly accepted, It was a life-changing experience for me, let me enlarge a little upon the sermon, to go to a retreat some months before I set out into seminary, part of my journey. It was a retreat offered by another congregation, not to attract people to that congregation, but to change their lives and perhaps help other congregations. It was a four-day retreat, and with about 40 other people, I gathered outside the retreat center out in the country, actually not very far from where I now live, in Maryland, on the road to Damascus, as they like to say. And in our gathering time together, the retreat leader asked a simple question as she went around the room. What is the greatest joy in your life today? And what is the greatest sorrow? Now, those are pretty simple questions, but no one had ever asked me questions like that before. That too was a transformative experience, as was the rest of the retreat. Now let's go a little further. We are accustomed in our democratic spirit automatically to bring into our life together the model of counting votes, the majority rules, Robert's rules. How often have you come away from a group decision either outvoted or having succumbed to group pressure to go along, but troubled that the decision seemed hasty or poorly considered, or divisive, even unthinking, have you sometimes feared that this issue or the bitterness it left behind would come back to haunt the group at another time? Now again, suppose that we've accepted the idea of our congregation as a school for living. Might we, rather than quickly counting the votes, instead draw on the experience of our Quaker friends? Might we try harder for consensus with its commitment to allow ourselves to be changed? what we hear from others. Elizabeth O'Connor in The New Community suggests that in addressing the important issues in our life together, this quest might even invite us, after someone has spoken, to sit for a moment in silence to absorb what they have said. Can we even imagine that? Silence is not generally our way of life. Or short of that, could we set ourselves the lesser task of listening carefully to our fellow members and trying to pick up the feelings of the life experience that underlie what they have said before we decide what we will say? Perhaps when we later speak, we could then truly respond, not just rebut or reply. These are major changes in the way people most often relate to each other in our society, even in church. But if we can begin to learn what it means to listen to each other, to listen from the heart, our life together will become for us truly a life-changing experience. Do we have the courage to open ourselves to change? But then do we really want to settle for anything less? If our religious life together does not change our lives, then Why do we do it? What else is it about? Why bother? Now there you have it. There's just one more thing, but it's important. We've begun to look at ourselves in a new way as a school for a living. We've set out on the lifelong, life-changing journey of learning to accept and listen to each other, of becoming ministers, lay and clergy alike, Now we may discover that there is a curious consequence of modeling what it means to be compassionate. As we become changed people, we may find that we cannot stop with our fellow members. We may find ourselves being more compassionate in all of our life. We may come to experience the meaning of the second part of the great commandment of the Jewish and Christian tradition that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves we may discover that every human being everywhere is our neighbor. For it is only as we truly care about each other that we can begin to care about the people, as I said then, in Nicaragua or South Africa or the Middle East, still the Middle East. We can best build our efforts to transform the world around us on a strong foundation of caring for each other. But the community among ourselves may will then become a model for us in extending our work out into the world. As we join with others in the work of justice, we will find that it is this model of caring among ourselves that gives us the credibility we need to attract others to our cause. Let me close with a story from a book by Ram Dass and Paul Gorman called How Can I Help? It was then quite popular, and you may know it. It's a story which, for me, says it all. It reveals poignantly what, in the end, it means to be human. We discover that as we learn to be there for each other, we have learned the very secret of life. This can be so even as Together we face life's moment of ultimate aloneness, the moment of death. Just as it is so in all of our life together. In this story, a nurse recalls the incredible beauty and the unbearable pain which pervaded the hospital's neonatal intensive care unit. She also speaks of the machines, wonderful as they are, which put so much distance between the nurses and the infants, For each infant is strapped to a massive spaghetti of tubes which lead to a complex of pumps, monitors, and other high-tech devices. And I'm sure there are even more of them today and more high-tech than they were then. And their mothers cannot be with them. So a group of us, the nurse said, began to talk about it, to open up to our feelings. The more we opened up, it just became natural that we began this new practice of holding infants holding infants in our arms when the time would come for them to die. And we'd sit with them in their final moments. It it tears you apart, holding them, because holding them, sometimes you can feel them go. On the machines, it's monitored as brain death. In your arms, it's the heart and the breath. It's unbearable and beautiful at the same time. How do you explain that? It's just the part of you that's with them is getting ripped up. But the part of you that's like trying to understand it all, well, that's beautiful because you see that you can be, we all can be, in the presence of great pain, but still appreciate life, even in its last moments. Especially And again my mind returns to my cancer patient late that night in intensive care. You know it doesn't really matter what you said. The important thing is that you were there. Do we not know in our hearts that this is what life is about? All of religion is about being there for each other and what it means and how we do it. There at the bedside, I think Michael and I both came closer to feeling the meaning of life. Life is about joining hands. Life is about holding each other at times of crisis. Life is about carrying one another's burdens, feeling another's heartbeat and listening to another's story. Hope springs from the knowledge that another cares. We know that we are, after all, not alone. We are surrounded by a community of people who care. We are a community of people who care. And together we are for the world around us a community of people who care. A community of hope. A community of hope. That was the concept which so warmed my heart as I set out into ministry. It's still my one sermon, I think. Though I'm perhaps a little less naive about it than I was then. But ministers are not the only ones who dream. Has there been a great dream that shaped your life? Stirred your heart? Howard Thurman speaks of these dreams as the chiffon of our hopes and aspirings. If we keep them at the focal point of our hearts he says we will be at we will at last become the living the living embodiment of what we dream it is my prayer for all of us that the dreams we share in this place this place we call our ship of dreams will set our hearts on fire and will shape the life we share may it be so May it be so. Let's close with a hymn from the Teal Hymnal, Building Bridges, number 1023. It's around.